0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the 19th century, the world was gripped by gold fever. We've all got an image of grizzled prospectors running to the hills with a pickaxe and a gold pan. But how many miners actually made their fortunes in gold rushes? And how many were chasing a hollow dream? For today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, I spoke to the historian Dr. Stephen Tufnell about the great gold rushes of the 19th century. We had some brilliant questions in for this one. So thanks to all of you who submitted them on our social media channels. So thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. We're talking about gold rushes. So let's start by defining some terms. What are we talking about when we're talking about a gold rush? How was it different to just ongoing gold mining?
3: Thanks, Ellie. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, that's a really great question. I mean, of course, there have been gold mining societies um around the world in, in effect um the allure of gold has driven people to mine it and to refine it and to and to smelt it and to create artifacts jewelry and 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 later on uh, money and other exchangeable objects for it I mean, what makes a gold rush different though is it's really about scale and it's about the speed and the pace i think of the gold mining that then then takes place And in effect, um, the 19th century rushes stand out for all those reasons. Um, So what makes those gold rushes, as opposed to kind of continuous gold mining, um, really would be the huge transfers of population that take place. Um, So people migrating from large metropolitan areas uh, into places that are on the periphery uh, of European and American expansion, uh, whether that's in Australia, Southern Africa, um, California, uh, or other parts of the world. Uh, and the the scale of the transfer of um, goods, capital, um, property, and ideas that come with that, and how they transform those spaces, in what what some people would call a kind of period of sort of telescope development. So you get a period of um, economic progress uh, about of a decades worth taking place within one or two years, and it's the mass transformation of those places in that time period. I suppose the other part to add to that was that it would be that for the nineteenth century, anyway. It's a gold rush because people think it's a gold rush and they experience it as a gold rush. But the metaphors they would reach for there are ones that would be quite familiar to us now. Um, the most unsettling thing that you could imagine in mid-19th century would be disease. And so people who, who are rushing to the gold fields have got gold fever, they're struck down with an illness. And as the New York Herald, I think, um, quite evocatively described it, at the height of the kind of California rush, um, the public mind had been set on the highway to insanity um, which is a really telling metaphor for how um, gold would make people, as they termed it, into yellow slaves. So these are people who are obsessed with the search for gold. And I think that is, makes it quite different from those earlier periods of just gold mining.
0: So, what are some of the biggest or most significant gold rushes that we see in the 19th century?
3: Yeah, so I think each gold rush society probably thinks of itself as being the most um, significant. And we tend to think of the California gold rush as setting the template. Um, for the great gold rushes that happen uh, in the 19th century, I think it's best to think of this as a period of, of a series of interconnected gold rushes um, taking place around the world um, that, that begin uh, with the California gold rush in 1848 and really end um, with the Yukon gold rush uh, in 1898, uh, where after it become gold mining becomes much more capital intensive and corporate. This is a 50 year period. Uh, in which um, the world is struck by repeated gold rushes. And California, really, its significance uh, is not only in the wealth it creates and the the mythologies around it, um, but it really is the starting pistol for that half century of gold rushes. Um, So following California, you have Victoria uh, in 1851, uh, and then between them, really, the Western American states, uh, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and they experience almost 40 gold rushes Uh, over that period, and Nevada and California remain in this state of near-constant gold discovery. In the the decade beginning then 1857 in in New Zealand, five of its provinces, so Nelson, Otago, Marlborough, Canterbury and Auckland, they all experienced gold rushes. In 1868, gold is discovered uh, in the Avalo River in Lapland, um, triggering a gold rush to the region there, uh, which peaks in 1872. And then the gold rush to South Africa begins in 1886 in the in the borough republics there um but that's too is quickly followed by rushes in southern rhodesia uh, in the gold coast in west africa and then and then finally ending uh with the klondike gold rush um in the yukon territory the most peripheral probably of all those um rushes um closer to home uh, there's the great southern gold rush which strikes in 1869 uh, in in the highlands uh, in scotland Uh, where a Scottish miner who's just returned from Australia uh, called Robert Gilchrist finds gold uh, near Kildonan. Uh, And we call it a rush. It's about 600 prospectors, but I think into that remote area. It's still, nevertheless, a a big transformation. So it's that that period of near-constant gold discovery, uh, which is they're often connected to one another. Some of the rushers are engaged in this kind of constant search for gold and they will move between gold fields themselves. So I think it's really that 50-year period and that's significant. So rather than singling out a single rush, it's the the gold rush phenomena that's most important.
0: Mm. So a lot of the areas that you're talking about there, North America, um, Australia, South Africa, at this time um, had experienced a lot of white um, European settlement and colonisation. What's the connection there? Or is there one? Is it coincidental?
3: It's absolutely not coincidental. Um, This is fundamentally a story about white settler colonialism and what's happening then is that particularly under the influence of the British Empire which is transforming um, the global trading and communication system uh, in the middle of the the 19th century uh, which is making it not easy and not cheap but easier and cheaper um, to travel longer long distances uh, and, and into peripheral areas that's enabling these great battalions of gold rushes to move around the world. The 19th century economy, much as our economy today, is is a mineral economy, and I think that's a significant part of this. Those new systems of communication and transportation depend on, um, in the case of transportation, coal, fossil fuels. The search for minerals there is important. The telegraph requires copper, and so the search for um, copper there matters a great deal as well. Likewise, you could think of the guano rush as part of this wider um, mineral economy um, so people searching for nitrates to develop um, agricultural regions around the world uh, and then finally gold is is a part of that but what what the British government is doing and what the US government the um, US state starts to do as well is they systematize the search for minerals so in the case of Britain that would be um, institutions like the Geographical Society or the Um, geological society um, which is sending out expeditions explorers to map and find those deposits and that really enables um, the search for those gold rushes so in the in the battle for resources um, between those empires um, gold starts to take um, center stage although it's not it's not in and of itself much use but it significantly for britain the search for gold backs the stability of the, the pound um, and, and so supports Britain's dominance of the global economy. And so a lot of the, coal, the gold coming from California and other places goes straight into the coffers of the Bank of England and is increasing the stability of that global financial system. So it is in part a story about chance and coincidence, uh, but really it's a story about um, the systematic search um, for those minerals to keep powering um, the kind of globalising world economy.
0: So now I want to take us to a question that we've had in from Instagram from one of our followers, Marina2018, who's asked, How did information spread across the world at this time to encourage people to go looking for gold?
3: Gold rushes are based entirely on rumor. Speculation is, after all, a gamble. No one really knows. Um, what's out there. Uh, What's facilitating that um, is the extraordinary literacy of of many of these um, Anglo societies in this period and the the spread of um, newspaper and print culture um, on both sides of the Atlantic, which is um, just facilitating the spread of rumour about gold uh, around the world. But it, it means that information and news now travels at much greater speed. I think the other way of thinking of it, though, is that gold rushes are as much cultural events as economic or demographic ones, and so on the one hand, yes, there is the um, the newspaper and press um, and allied to that is the rise of um, advertising um, as well so you, when you start to hear rumors of gold, you also start to see then um, that gold it becomes ubiquitous in newspaper advertisements it sells it sells copy uh, and the gold is advertised everything from uh, root beer. Um, to kind of quack medicine cure to products like goldometers and gold grease, uh, which is supposed to help you in the search for for gold. Um, and in the case of the gold grease, you're supposed to rub that all over your body uh, and then roll down a hill in California, um, and, and it was, it would have, you would attract the gold that way. But then, the, you know, the cultural phenomenon sort of spreads out ever, ever more widely, and travel accounts, um, Gold Rush travel accounts published in this period, are a key part of the culture of Russian and shape the perception of what a rush is. Given all the migration, the the letters going back and forth between families, also an important part of that information network that's spreading information around the world. Um, And then um, by the time you move into the late 19th century, uh, the telegraph is making the spread of information much, much quicker. I think the key part about the telegraph, though, is that it's expensive. And so um, it it sort of works hand in hand with the increasing corporatization of mining. Um, So the finances who can afford to share information over Telegraph, hoard it for themselves and start to develop minds outside of a kind of rush phenomena.
0: Yeah, so what can you tell us about those people who responded to these rumours and decided to go to find gold? S.M. Paley on Instagram has asked about the role of Chinese immigrants in the California gold rush. Um, And I wonder if you could broaden that out to tell us a bit more about the participants in these rushes in general
3: yeah absolutely I think um the typical image of a gold rush would be a kind of single white man, probably bearded and um, probably with a pan uh, and a kind of lone prospector. and it speaks to I think powerful ideas about the the notion that you you know you can individually make it big uh, in the gold rush. I think that is largely a myth though, I'm afraid, but th- there's a truth in it in the sense that they're overwhelmingly white anglo male settlers um these are societies that are fundamentally. Often um, very male. If you think of California in the 1852 um, state census, census, the population is 92% male. Um, the female population then increases to about 40% by 1860, so it does rise quickly. But in the initial period, they are overwhelmingly male. So these are places that come to be dominated by white Anglo males. Uh, this is a story change over time, though. I think when the California rush begins in particular, I mean, the first rushes are not um, white. Americans. Um, there'll be um, Sonorans, uh, Yaqui Indians uh, from the northern part of Mexico uh, and from and Californios. Um, so these are settlers who have moved into the state a long time before the rush. Um, so we think there are probably around 10,000 uh, Mexicans and Yaqui Indians who, be- who begin the California Gold Rush. And the, the population remains fairly cosmopolitan. So they come from Chile, from Peru, other parts of South and Central America. Uh, there are also Australians and New Zealanders in, in California. Um, But about a quarter of the population, though, be um, Chinese migrants. And that remains stable across Gold Rush societies um, around the world. So I think uh, of all Gold Rush migrants, uh, a a quarter of Chinese in general. If you're in the Australian colony of Victoria, 1859, sort of eight years after the rush begins, um, there are 42,000 Chinese miners uh, in that colony. It's about one in five of the men then are Chinese. Uh, If you're in Queensland, about two decades later, you're looking at a population ratio of around 17,000 Chinese to 1,400 um, people of European origin. So they, they are a large, a very large part of the um, population.
0: So how do we explain that? Because it's, it's a long way to go from China to North America or to Australia.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, they're part of this bigger imperial drama that we've been talking about already. Um, so what's happening, in the, these are largely migrants from the... Um, southern coastal coastal provinces of late Qing China, two things are happening. So in part, it's about the instability of those provinces following the Taiping and the lesser anti-Manchu rebellions, which increases the appeal of migration overseas. So when they hear about um, Old Gold Mountain, which is California, or, or New Gold Mountain, which is Australia, um, the appeal of m- migrating and moving is very, very strong. But that's only possible because of the treaty port infrastructure that you, the, the British Empire and others have, in, have created in those in those regions. These are not um, economically deprived people, though, necessarily. Um, these are prosperous, outward-looking uh, young men uh, who are seeking new opportunities around the world. Um, so they're, they're very well organised. I think there's a myth, too, that they tend to be kind of contracted single men, sometimes dismissively called coolie labour. But they're, in fact, very well organised. They work in companies. They work very collaboratively together. Uh, they're responsible for some of the transfers of technology that take place between um, gold fields too. So it's Chinese miners who bring the long tom, uh, which is a large sort of sluice box uh, with a chute at one end where you pour the water and gravel down and a kind of filter or riddle at the other where you can sort the gold and the stones. And they become commonplace across gold fields, but they are largely moved with the Chinese miners. I think what also is important here, though, is that though they're 25% of all gold rush migration, this is a very small proportion of the total migrants leaving uh, Fujian and Guangdong uh, provinces. Um, but what matters is that their appearance on these gold fields and the perception um, that more China, Chinese miners will follow really starts to shape gold fields' culture and society. And you see quite quickly in California, foreign miners' taxes introduced to try and push them out of the the richer kind of gold mining areas and to reserve those for white Anglo-Saxon miners and those who are are deemed to become kind of future Republican leaders in in that state. And you start to see more broadly a kind of anti-Chinese sentiment and political movement in all of these gold rush societies, attempting to exclude them from uh, Goldfield's life. Um, So at the same time that empires are creating the technology and infrastructure Uh, for mass migration. They're also erecting new borders and boundaries to control the mobility of undesired um, peoples as well. So they're, they're part of that bigger, I think, imperial drama.
0: Well, on the subject of the culture of these mining societies, Adam Stiles on Facebook had a really good question, which was, were mining camps really as lawless as they're depicted in popular media? I think they're often shown, aren't they, as essentially the Wild West. Is that fair?
3: Yes and no. I think <laughs> they are they are incredibly violent uh, often, but they're not lawless. So I would say, reading any account of um, life in California, you will find um, evidence of um, claim jumping, of incredible violence upon one another, whether that's um, with with firearms or otherwise, uh, and also kind of re- retributive violence. So uh, this, I suppose, is where the, the distinction between violent and lawlessness starts to creep in. So there be vi- there is violence in the absence of um, police authorities in the early parts of Russia's miners themselves often take it upon themselves to police um those communities and they they elect sheriffs or alcaldes as they're known in, in um California um to start to police goldfield's behavior they form committees uh, which are a kind of republican and democratic in form and they elect representatives um to um help shape new laws and customs for the governing gold rush societies and so they take on that role themselves and so some of the violence is um, retributive and it will be that um, uh, claim jumpers um, so th- claim jumper is someone who um, steals somebody else's um, mining rights in, in effect or takes over their mine for themselves they will be hung quite publicly uh, in a kind of um, symbolic demonstration of um, the rules that govern a uh, global society what ha- when, there's, there's some slight distinctions to be made though I think in California where the American state is very absent for a large part of um, the gold rush phase, uh, is quite different from what happens in places like Australia and British Columbia, where there's a very visible um, state presence. And um, colonial authorities there, in Australia in particular, very concerned about the importation of American violence into gold rush life there and because of the proportion of American miners um, that are in that town. So they have much um, stricter and more visible police presences there. Um, And, of course, the the land there is all owned by the crown and granted to um, the miners. So there is a a more coherent system for governing the claims. Um, But the fear of that American-style violence really shapes their response to Gold Rush societies. You sort of see that in the aftermath of the um, Eureka Stockade, uh, which is a rebellion in a town called Ballarat, uh, which is just outside of um, Melbourne and is probably the centre of Gold Rush life in colonial Victoria, uh, there was an attempt by American miners and others to overthrow the local government and create a republic. But quite quickly, the authorities clamped down on that stockade uh, and uh, then quashed it with quite violent, uh, retributive public hangings of the leaders. So the first of those people to be hung there is a black American who's migrated um, to uh, Melbourne and is, is, is identified as one of the leaders of that Rebellion. So they're, they're lawless. They are they are violent, um, dangerous places to be. Um, in part, some of that is to do with the net, like the composition of gold rush societies as well. If you think about um, California, um, some of the, the first Anglo miners to arrive are people who've jumped ship. Um, so. One of the impacts of the California Rush is it signals the death of the California of um, the United States Pacific trade. And so, if you were to visit San Francisco Harbor in 1849, you'd see their rotten hulks of around 600 merchant ships there, where the crew have all fled to the gold fields. But they take with them a very violent crew, um, kind of crew culture uh, that is um, revolves around gambling. Uh, and um, you know bawdy acts of violence, and so some of the, some of the culture uh, the hyper masculinist culture of goldfield societies is is shaped by that, and what you see too though is a clash though between those early migrants and um, the kind of working class men uh, who jump ship, and then the later migrants who arrive from the east coast United States who are more middle class bring with them a whole set of values about what social life should be like and how society should be governed. And so then there's a, there's a male struggle over the future of that society. And the Vigilance Committees in San Francisco in uh, the early 1850s are a, a visible manifestation of that where uh, local populations try to root out so-called criminal gangs, bring order to those places. And the, the chief target, ironically, while Australians are targeting Americans, uh, Americans start targeting um, so-called Sydney Ducks, alleged convicts who have come from Australia into the state and so they're punished quite quickly for that.
0: So gold mining societies are essentially gentrified over a couple of decades.
3: I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, because so many of the migrants are middle class, gold mine migration is incredibly expensive. So it's out of the realms of possibility for most working class men to do it. And you're probably spending upwards of 400 to $500 for kit, of kit um, to get yourself to California. And that, that just excludes large proportion of working-class men but yeah they take with them a whole set of values um, about what work is about what crime and disorder look like and how a society should be organized Uh, they take that with them and it's um stability is brought to those those places
0: still to come on the history extra podcast
3: Miners are addicted, I think, to the gamble of doing that and reading their um, journals um, can often be quite a bruising experience of miners saying, well, I didn't really find anything today. I rocked the, I rocked the cradle all day and I, you know, I found a couple of flakes that are may, worth maybe a dollar. But, but, you know, you never know, tomorrow I might, I might get something.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel pcom slash History Extra.
0: So one of the things that come up again and again when you've been speaking are these questions of rights and claims. So let's just cover that off. Um, If me or you, more likely you as a man, turned up to um, a mining field, what rights would we have to start digging? And if we found anything, what claims would we have to keep it?
3: This varies hugely from place to place. In California, um, because the the gold mine um, doesn't resort to the crown, you have the right to to keep it and do with it what you will, um, sell it or otherwise, um, uh, or gamble it away as is often the case. Um, Or even, as is typical too, um, the the gold you make um, probably acts like a wage. Um, so most miners are not making huge amounts of money and they're probably just covering their costs every week with the, the flake gold that they find. Um, so you you can keep that. But there is a system of um, you apply for a licence to mine particular plots and you'll pay a fee to do that. So th- there's a, a startup investment cost for doing that. In Australia, too, you would apply for a licence to mine and you'd be given a particular claim. Hence the violence that often comes with that. I mean, people get jealous of the fact that two claims down someone is getting a lot of gold out of it and you're several hundred metres away and you're getting very little. Um, so it is essentially a lottery in that respect. But the crown has the rights to the gold in British colonies. So usually you sell that to the crown um, and they, they take it away. But it's the story there too, a similar story there too, where um, most miners in Australia are making what they call, kind of, they're, they're working what's called tucker ground, so enough to make their days living, but not, nothing more than that.
0: Well, that leads us on quite nicely to a question from Adam Styles again, who said, in a gold rush, on average, what percentage of miners actually made any real money from their activities? You're suggesting here not that many.
3: Yeah, a very low percent. Um, as I said, um, if you're in California, um, the most you're making is about a dollar a day um, for many miners. But board, this is the dilemma that they face. Board and lodging might cost as much as $3 a day. Um, so they, th- this is why the the image of the lone prospector sort of gives way to cooperative, collaborative work becomes much more cost effective to work together in companies. Um, and so Chinese miners and and white miners and other um, miners are, are largely working in companies for that reason. It's the same. I mean, because it is a gamble. Um, very few make it rich, as it were. But there are always stories of people who do. So the the famous one is in eighteen forty eight. 39-year-old Scottish miner, another Scottish miner um, called James Brookmeyer, who was then farming in Pennsylvania, uh, sells up his farm, uh, goes to California. um, By 1852, he's returned. um, So four years later, he's returned to Pennsylvania with $15,000 of gold dust. The likes of the Brookmeyers are few and far between. I think most people are making enough um, to live. And so the great Disappointment for gold rushers is that um they're tr- in trying to free like, free like flee wage labor, they end up in a situation where they are essentially working for wages again. But the part of the point is that the stories about Brook Myers and others that may be apocryphal are exactly why people are are, are Russian though. It's just a longed for hope that you might be the one. Uh, to do that, that is what is what driving people, and so they miners are addicted. I think to the gamble of doing that, and reading their um, journals um, can often be quite a bruising experience. Of miners saying, "Well, I didn't really find anything today. I rocked, the, I rocked the cradle all day, and I, you know, I found a couple of flakes that may they're worth maybe a dollar, but but you know, you never know. Tomorrow I might I might get something, and that's really what's driving them on. Um, so, in a sense, I mean, the question is a good one because it just shows the the um, irrational. Um, kind of gam- gambling nature of uh, of the go- of gold rush societies, but the money is there to be made um, in in gold rush societies. Um, it's just not from the gold.
0: Well, that leads us on very nicely to a question from Paul Marx Twelve on Twitter, who has asked, "Did somebody, as the saying goes, really strike it rich making shovels for the gold rush?" And I want to broaden that out a bit to to talk a little bit about the the subsidiary economies you know who was making money not from the gold directly but from the russias
3: yeah these are great this is a great question I think um the the real money is being made by the people supplying the Russians both in the kind of metropolitan areas where Russias are leaving from and then in the societies that they arrive in so Outfitters that are providing the equipment in, say, a town like Independence, Missouri, before miners set off on the Overland Trail, to California, are raking it in. Because they're convinced miners that they need all of this unnecessary equipment. And it's equipment that they can't really carry over such a vast distance, effectively. So, yeah, mo- most people are making money on the, in, in the kind of tertiary economy of the gold rush. So, outfitting, um, in um, board and lodging, in supplying food and um uh, in the In the kind of um, travel industries that that support it, so in the the steamship or the sail ship routes and things like that, early um, a lot of money has been made too in um, in the land speculation that accompanies gold rush and particularly in places like San Francisco. Uh, and Denver, Colorado or Melbourne where they're often, these places are often described as sort of instant cities where suddenly a, a city booms overnight. So the early movers who buy up city plots see that their land gains enormous value. And a famous example would be someone like William uh, Laidsdorf in San Francisco who invests $2,000 in 1846 in city land and by 1855 he's seen uh, that that investment rise to $27,000. So it's really, they're, they're cashing in um on it there um i mean what's funny i suppose is that um contemporaries themselves are alert to this so critics of the gold rush would say um you know the problem with gold rushes is, is that people are making money off the rushes and there's a sort of parasitic economy um fueling um their desire and, and making money out of them um the uh, so sydney herald Want to describe it, you know, um, in an article, it was titled How Gold May Best Be Extracted. And it had a one-sentence um, summary of it um, by supplying it at exorbitant prices uh, the wants of those who gather it. So th- th- that's where the money's being made. But huge, I mean, huge firms develop around this, um, th- th- these sort of industries. I mean, the most famous example, and probably m- many listeners are sat right now in a pair of Levi's jeans, Levi Strauss is a Jewish migrant from Germany uh, who opens this dry goods store in San Francisco in 1853. And I suppose in in many places too, because um, white men don't want to take on domestic work like provisioning, um, providing food. Um, That's that's women's labour. Either those early female migrants enter that space and carve out a large space of autonomy and wealth making for themselves uh, in the kind of hospitality industry, or increasingly um, Chinese men are pushed into so-called um, domestic industries like laundry and things like that. So those who are pushed out of the the, the gold rush economy proper um, actually find that there's money to be made in, in that supporting sector.
0: So beyond a pair of great Levi's jeans, what were some of the um, key elements of a kit bag um, for a gold miner of this period?
3: Depends what phase of the rush you're at. So in the alluvial phase, which is the phase that we most recognise the gold rushes, so that's the phase where... Uh, miners are looking for the flakes of gold and the nuggets of gold that have kind of um, been shorn off the rock uh, and are no longer embedded in quartz or a conglomerate of minerals uh, that you can find either in the riverbank uh, or in the riverbed. Um, And so to get that gold, um, you can use quite primitive technology, I suppose, quite basic technology. Um, That's where the gold pan uh, might be used. That's slow going, but you, you can't really shift the, the amount of gravel that you need to to, to prosper panning for gold. Um, so what miners do is start to erect um, large wooden sluices that divert streams and riverbeds and creek beds um, with a filter at the end, and they can shovel gravel into it. The force of the river uh, washes it for them, and then they can pick the gold out of the, the bottom. So the, the technologies are quite basic. It's backbreaking work. Um, you, you're basically digging gravel and pouring it into a chute uh, all day long, uh, in freezing cold um, water. I mean, this is um, rivers that is made up of the meltwater from um, snow-capped mountains and things like that. So it, it, it's, it's back-breaking work in that respect. So th- in places where um, the river is run dry, as it were, um Ballarat or other parts of Australia where water is scarce, that would involve um, digging in, in um, dried-up riverbeds and trying to filter out and find nuggets that way. because. Pr- Pre-metal detector, so we're just looking. They're using their their eye to try and find those nuggets. Um, The alluvial phase that usually ends quite quickly. This is where the historian as party pooper kind of comes back in again. Um, So, by 1853, that that part of the rush is over in California, and there's a transition to what's called hydraulic mining, Um, and this is a different scale of technology. Um, but no, no less in some ways, no less simple. Um, so hydraulic mining is um, you maintain all of the system of sluices um, and um, filters, um, but you you basically use a high pressure hose um, to wash away um, creeks, creeks and riverbeds and, and mountainsides. sides, um, uh, and the rubble then runs through um, these sluices and you can extract the gold that way. The the challenge with hydraulic mining is that it's twofold. First, it's incredibly expensive. Um, you need to be able to buy the, the equipment for it. You need to be able to buy the lumber. Uh, and we're talking about miles and miles of, um, lum- of, of, of sluices for, for dealing with this. Um, the other challenge is that it's um, highly dependent on the use of quicksilver or mercury. Um, so we, what you put in the bottom of those sluices is Mercury to bind to the gold and make an alloy, um, because w- once you've entered this phase, uh, the concentration of gold in the rock is much much finer. Your eye is not enough; you need something to kind of catch it, and that has disastrous impacts on um, the ecology of, of California. And so there are even today advisories on um, California rivers that you shouldn't eat the fish um, because of the concentration of methyl mercury uh, in the fish's brains um, and their body that, um, that may may cause problems for for humans, so it's an incredibly destructive process. It, it wreaks environmental devastation, as does the deforestation that's required there. Not, not only um, that they're washing away um, ecosystems and creeks and, and rivers and rediverting them, them, um, flooding rivers with huge amounts of debris that's then causing flash floods further down the stream, but the deforestation of places like Oregon and Nevada um, for um, hydraulic mining is, is vast. So the, there is another way of, um, I mean, the other technologies used, they, they, they become more and more complex over time. And the complexity of the technology increases with the complexity of the geology. And So by the time you get to the South, um, to the South African um, gold rush, you enter a phase of, quite quickly, of corporate mining. Because the problem there is that there is huge amounts of gold in, in South Africa. It's probably the richest deposit um, in the world. Um, but it's trapped in the rock in very fine particles at low concentrations, So you have to process enormous amounts of waste rock to get the gold. And that requires, again, huge amounts of money um, to both employ the labourers uh, and um, erect the equipment, uh, but leads to new types of technologies to process it. So a gold mine in California, which may involve the washing away of, of land with a high-powered hose, looks very di- it looks very different in South Africa where this is a deep-level mine. Mine shafts probably sunk to around... Um, 400, 600 feet, um, with the rubble, the waste rock being brought to the surface. And then it is pounded to a fine dust by these huge what are called stamp mills, which is effectively just a a large weight. It goes up and down and crushes the rock into a fine powder. That powder is then treated with cyanide to extract the kind of fine particles of gold from it. And it's then separated. Um, So it's a very um, capital-intensive and labour-intensive process. And then, of course, the cyanide waste is dumped, usually into large tailings pools, Uh, where it infects the water course and you get a problem called acid mine drainage, which is uh, uh, infecting um, water courses there. So the technologies are are both sophisticated and, um, in in effect, quite simplistic um, because we're we're in an era pre-environmental regulation and um, it's it's just all about extracting the, the gold that you can get.
0: As well as those devastating environmental impacts, um, Adam Stiles on Facebook has asked what the lasting impacts of gold rush on a community are. So, what about the social and economic impacts?
3: The, the lasting impacts are um, are extraordinary in some ways. You can measure this in some senses through the population growth that you witness in each of these what you might call kind of gold rush gateways. So, the cities like San Francisco, Melbourne, or um, Johannesburg uh, in, in South Africa. So. The kind of harbour of Yerba Buena for San Francisco is known 1848. It's home to about 800 people on the eve of the gold rush, tiny, tiny little place. Two years later, it's up to 10,000, uh, and then it's up to 50,000 in another um, decade's time. That's an extraordinary growth in itself. There's about half a million people also transit through the city as well, all of whom are reshaping it and changing it in different ways. And the, the population growth is is similar in other places, If you think of um, Victoria across the Pacific, the population there in the the colony goes from around 77,000 at the start of the the gold rush in 1851 um, to about 411,000 six years later. Likewise, New Zealand's non marry population doubles between 1861 and 1864 from 98,000 to 171,000. So beyond the statistics, they, they give a good indication of just the sheer number of people that are coming in. The societies that are created, um, but they, they really do have to create themselves um, overnight, and it leads to all kinds of, kind of ad hoc developments. And so all of downtown San Francisco is really built out of the a, of a backfilled harbour. So what happens is there's a shortage of space in the city. You need hotels, you need housing, you need storage and warehousing facilities. Uh, and all of those abandoned ships in the harbour that I mentioned earlier, many of them are demasted, so they cut down the, the masts, they bring them close to the shore, and they build out um, wooden walkways to the ships and use them as part of the the kind of city's infrastructure. And then what happens over time is the, just a huge amounts of trash um, fill up between the ships and the walkways, and they become part of it. It's, a, it's like reclaimed land, and it becomes part of the downtown area. It's sort of fancifully described as a Venice of Pine um, by by native San Francisco San Franciscans, and uh, they they often um, um, point out how the um, the streets will sway because of the ebb and flow of the tide. But I think <laughs> it's it's really a quite um, chaotic place. In the case of Melbourne, it becomes known as the kind of tent city because the population booms so quickly and there's a shortage of building materials. Um, everyone lives in in, in tents. Um, and so um, just on the city's limit, most of these gold rushes and the, the families supporting them uh, are part of that um, tent city. So the places themselves um, go through periods of rapid and turbulent growth. Also, the other interesting impact, though, is to think about the impact on the societies that sent them. So there's a well-known phenomena um, in Britain, in the East Coast of the United States and elsewhere, gold rush widows. So these are the families left behind, the women left behind by the gold rushes. It raises fears about the abandonment of vulnerable women uh, and the lack of a male head of household to, to support those, those families, um, and many of those women are, are doubtless abandoned. Um, these men either die on the passage or don't return or just flee. Um, some men are sending remittances back to those um, to those families and, and people. What, what's also happened though, is it's opening opportunities for some women to begin running their household in more explicit ways. So there's a famous set of cartoons from the Victorian gold rush in Australia that depicts the impact of gold rushes on those women that they're now having to chop wood Um, start fires, um, manage the farm. Um, So it's a sort of classic story, I think, of both expanding and collapsing rights for for women in those societies.
0: And we've also had a really interesting question in from uh, Jane Ellsmore on Facebook, who's asked about the impacts on indigenous populations. So what can you tell us about that?
3: You know, in effect, the greatest piece of luck in US history in, in California, it's really um, the greatest indigenous disaster in the nation 's history, so the native population of California, so these are Yuki uh, Ni and Concao Indians uh, is about one hundred and fifty thousand in eighteen hundred and forty eight that 's already declining You've seen a drop of around fifty percent um, since Spanish settlement in the seventeenth century, but even still it 's nowhere near the cataclysmic drop in numbers that occurs with the uh, with the gold rush um, so it, shr- it shrinks by two thirds in six years after 1848 and that 150,000 is down to around 16,000 in 1880 so that's a decline of about 90 percent. Lots of things are happening here in part this is about the destruction of native foodways and lifeways so those uh, the hunting gathering fishing culture that's previously supported a high standard of living for those um, communities um, didn't last long in a goldfields environment where the topsoil is torn off and the rivers are polluted uh, and there's a huge influx of Hungry men shooting, um, shooting animals and fishing, uh, and there's a collapse in fish populations. And so those native foodways drop dramatically. The rushes also bring contact diseases, too, that they haven't experienced before, like the measles, that is contributing to the high mortality rate. But I think more important is the, the direct assault that takes place on indigenous Californians, often sponsored by the California state government. Uh, that historians now talk about it as a genocide, that there's a systematic attempt to stop the spread of those peoples to stop their survival, to stop them reproducing. And so in the Round Valley, which is sort of north of Mendocino, Northern California, there are government-backed militias um, who go out to hunt Indians, which contributes to that population decline. Gold rushes can, you know, some of the early California banks, and you can take out a bond and invest in one of those militia groups. So the militia will be paid for the, for the amount of people that it it kills, and so you'll get a return on your investment for that. Um, so it's a cataclysmic decline and ge- genocide of those peoples. The story is similar in other places. Uh, in Victoria, there's a similar story of the destruction of, of native foodways, and we think that there are kind of subsistence agrarian societies. The gold rush pushes those populations over the edge. It's a slightly different story, I think, in, in South Africa, where the capital-intensive and labour-intensive nature of that corporate mining Means that the solution to controlling costs is to try and employ people as cheaply as possible. And so they turn to black African labor uh, as the, the kind of manual labor of those mines. So about 90% of the labor force is made up of black African uh, miners. What happens there is that the recruit mine recruiters are sent out, found out across southern Africa uh, and recruit miners from uh, indigenous communities which are themselves undergoing this transition from kind of pastoralism into kind of industrial uh, economies and bring them to the mines they then need to control that labor um, so they start to erect kind of mining compounds these are housing spaces to keep the miners in place and make sure they work out their contracts and they start to introduce past laws and liquor laws so banning them from drinking and make it Making it so that Black Africans have to show their pass when they, when they move about those spaces, you start to see the emergence of kind of apartheid being created uh, out of the gold mines. So these are unskilled migrants that they're they're bringing in, are destabilising those Black African societies, and it's contributing to the revolutions already taking place in Southern Africa as um, groups like the Zulu and others fight one another for control of those spaces. The arrival of mining destabilises that area further, uh, and uh, white settlers then start to take advantage of that destabilization in, in southern Africa, especially in Matabele land and Mashana land, which has become Rhodesia, where they're drawing miners from as far away as Mozambique, and by 1910 as far away as sort of central Africa, the Congo. So they're really redrawing the pastoral life and economies of those places. And by 1910, that recruiting system is delivering about 200,000 black miners to the mines every year. So it's huge, you know, it's a huge movement of people into a very Um, harsh supervisory surveillance kind of labour system. Um, So the impacts on Indigenous peoples are, I think, dramatic, would be a very uh, narrow way to frame it. It, it. It utterly overturns previous communities.
0: So I've got a final few questions for you now. So the Golden from Golden on Instagram has asked, which gold rush generated the most wealth in history?
3: Yeah, this is a good question. I think there's an easy answer to this. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my head on the block though. I'm gonna going gonna say it's the South African gold rush. Simply because it's the it is the most mineral rich um of, of all of those strikes. Uh produces by by the turn of the twentieth century it's producing forty percent of all the world's gold, which is a phenomenal amount at this point. I mean we haven't said actually, I mean, you know, what what's happening with those with this fifty-year period is, you know, more gold is mined in that fifty years than in the previous three millennia uh, of world history. And South, South Africa really is the centrepiece of this. Where's the money being made, though, in, in South Africa? It's not being made in the mines. It's being made in the city of London. Because one of the other effects of gold rushes is they birth all kinds of new economic technologies and arrangements. And what happens is there's a boom in kind of company promotion on the London Stock Exchange. Everyone's claiming they have a, a gold-rich mine uh, and um speculators are then gambling in this this process but they're, they're generating phenomenal amounts of wealth and so in in terms of like pure income generation it's probably the south african um gold rush uh but i think in in each place each one of these rushes really is um is speeding the transition to a mineral economy um that we now live with today so i think they're all you know key in that process of um you know entrenching our dependence on mineral output um for the global economic system
0: so one thing that um andre sito 83 and agrobiodiverse have asked um on twitter and instagram is about the end of gold rushes have they ended do they still happen and if not why don't we have them anymore
3: yeah i love thinking about this i am i think uh in classic historic fashion then the answer is yes they haven't and no they haven't the the formal ending of like the Gold rush, in which the participants understood themselves as participating in a gold rush, It's probably the Yukon rush in 1898. I mean, the the sign that they're ending then is that even by that point, the miners are nostalgic for a previous era of gold rushing, uh, which is not dominated by large corporate enterprise, in in the sense of like the classic gold rush. Yeah, it's probably over. I, I think though that we still see we do still see rushes. Um, I mean, the one more recent ones would be sort of the shale gas rush. Where the yes, it's in part dominated by obviously by Canadian corporations, but you see a similar sort of like influx of um uh, of men uh, into those areas, all kind of prospecting, seeking to get rich from the economies there. It's just that the kind of like the te- the canvas tent has been swapped for a switch for a trailer or a kind of RV, but there, there's a similar like mass migration of people to that. So that's one type of rush. I think we're about to see one. Um, and this will be deeply, deeply contentious. Uh, and that will be a rush for undersea mining. Um, So there's an estimated £600 trillion uh, of mineral wealth on the ocean floor, which takes the form of what are called nodules. And so these are um, big mineral deposits like large rocks um, that are formed near, usually on the seabed, near underwater vents, which are mineral-rich. Yes, part silver and gold, um, but the the primary metals in them are copper, uh, manganese, nickel, and cobalt. Um, and these are all crucial materials in, in the batteries that we will need to power uh, electric cars and other green energies as we transition from a decarbonizing economy. The, the challenge will be how to get that and how to get it without destroying the ocean floor. And I suspect that those two goals are not compatible. So I think the idea of rushing has persisted even while like, the gold rush itself has probably demi- like diminished.
0: And I'd like to finish us off today with... A really interesting question from Catherine0411 on Instagram, who's asked, what's commonly overlooked when discussing gold rushes?
3: Yeah, it's a good, a really great question. I think a few things. One, I think, is that we talked about this a bit already, the collaborative nature of, of gold mining, even in a rush. The other thing I, I think really is something we've also been talking about um, off and on, I think, is the urban nature of of gold rushing, so while that yes the, the the gold is being mined in these sort of hinterland areas actually it 's really dependent upon a series of interlinked kind of what we call what I call kind of gateway cities, and they take a number of forms. They might be like mass transit ports like Liverpool or London uh, or Hong Kong, uh, but they might be kind of the incoming seaports like um, San Francisco or Melbourne, but I think also important are those that mushroom up and are developed on on the frontier of extraction, like Sacramento and California or. Johannesburg in Southern Africa or even um, Denver, Colorado. So I think that like the urban character is often overlooked because we focus so much on the individual quest and the romance of, you know, prospecting in a stream. And there are still, you know, people are still attracted to that. There are prospecting clubs all over the world. You can do it in Scottish rivers um, and, and everywhere around the world using scuba diving equipment. So I think what is overlooked is the, is the impact on the British Isles, the sheer outgoing amount of migrants to these places and how they transform the world, but then the impact on, you know, those local communities um, who are losing sons, brothers, whole communities sometimes, which has dramatic impact on them. And I think we're less cognizant of that here, but there, there's a kind of, excuse the pun, a kind of rich mine of information about, you know, just how important they are to local life.
0: That was Dr Stephen Tufnell. He's Associate Professor of History at the University of Oxford. Stephen also appeared on the History Extra podcast last year to speak in much more depth about a perilous gold rush in the freezing Yukon that he mentioned briefly today. Just search for the Klondike Gold Rush, that's Klondike with a K, in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.